defining period in my life was not running for the highest office in the land. It started years earlier in a foreign country where hardly anyone knew my name. Dear Mom and Dad, what a life. I can hardly believe that I'm living in such a wonderful place. My rest is about over, but I've really enjoyed myself so far. I'm going on a tour this afternoon, also one tomorrow morning. I should see about everything when I'm finished. The radio is playing. It reminds me of the times that I've been home playing Norma Jean's records. So far, I haven't heard any records by Frank Sinatra. I guess he isn't too popular over here. The war news really sounds good. I guess Russia plans on helping us with Japan. Keep your eyes on the news for big things to happen. Had a fine breakfast this morning. Scrambled eggs, bacon, tomato juice, toast and coffee. I sure miss my quart of milk per day. Tell Aunt Mildred to be sure to save some for Kenny and me when we get home. I ran onto a lieutenant in Eugene's camp only yesterday, but still haven't seen Eugene. So bye for now. Love, Bob. I folded the handwritten letter, dated April the 7th, 1945, one of the last that I would ever write with my right hand, and slipped it inside an envelope. I'd been enjoying a short leave in Rome, but the wonderful place in which I was living was a small pup tent pitched in war-torn Italy, near the Po Valley, not far from the mountain town of Castel Diano. I was a second lieutenant in the infantry, resting with the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division, an elite division of soldiers that, just prior to my arrival, had fought one of the bloodiest battles of the war. Because we were now in arrest mode, holding territory that had been won at a high price little more than a month earlier. I had plenty of time to write letters and to think. The war had finally tilted in our direction. Since D-Day in June 1944, the Allies had steadily fought from the beaches of Normandy toward Hitler's heartland. Although the casualties had been horrendous, the war was winding down. The Germans were retreating, Auschwitz had been liberated, the Americans and Russians were advancing toward Berlin, and it was time to start planning for the future. I couldn't wait to get back home to Russell, Kansas, where I'd been born and raised, back to Kansas University, where I'd been studying to become a doctor prior to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. I was looking forward to reestablishing myself as a student athlete at KU, well, at least as an athlete. Although I made passing grades, academics had not been my strength in school. Sports had been my passion. Ah, yes, back home. A pang shot through my heart when I thought about the young K.U. woman that I had hoped to marry until the war had separated us. Maybe someday I'd fall in love and get married, but for now, like most soldiers who'd been away from their families, I longed for the simple things. A home-cooked meal, a comfortable bed, unlimited hot water. Many nights, as I lay in my bedroll and dreamed of home, the crackle of distant enemy machine-gun fire or the ominous brup of a German burp gun jarred me back to reality. I was in Italy. This was war. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin had described the Italian front as the soft underbelly of the opposition. Renowned war reporter Ernie Pyle referred to Italy as the forgotten front, but apparently nobody had informed the Nazis of these dubious distinctions. In fact, Hitler apparently regarded the rugged Italian terrain as his last hope of fending off the Allied advances. 
He personally ordered that every inch of northern Italy be defended to the last drop of German blood. And a lot of blood was spilled on both sides. The American forces had pushed the Germans back from northern Africa and into the boot of Italy. Allied victories at Anzio, Salerno, and Monte Cassino had been hard fought, incurring heavy casualties. By the summer of 1944, the Germans had grudgingly given up Rome and Florence and had regrouped to the north in the Apennine Mountains, digging in among the steep mountain ridges. With the Nazis controlling these heights, the rapidly advancing Allied forces skidded to a standstill at the German Gothic Line, a 120-mile heavily fortified barrier stretching across the Apennines north of Florence and blocking entrance to the Po Valley. Beyond that was another line of German defenses known as the Genghis Khan Line, entrenched in a second chain of mountain ridges. For the next 300 days, the Germans held on tenaciously, knowing that if they lost this ground, the Allies would pour through the Po Valley and make for the suddenly vulnerable southern borders of the Reich, and from there on to total victory. Despite diminishing air support, the Germans were well dug into their bunkers around Castel Diano, refusing to budge. They fought as men with no hope, either ahead or behind them. They were a formidable foe, because they had nowhere else to go. One of the areas most fiercely defended by the Germans was Mount Belvedere, whose 3,500-foot elevation was considered inaccessible without being spotted by snipers. Because they also held the 1,500-foot-high sheer cliff elevation known as Reaver Ridge on the opposite side of the valley, the Germans had clear sight of any American forces attempting to mount an assault against them from any direction in the punch bowl below. Moreover, by controlling both high observation points, they created a bottleneck through which any Allied troops would have to pass if they hoped to move north from Florence to Bologna, onward toward Hitler's homeland. Three times the Allied forces pushed north against Mount Belvedere, and three times German defenders pounded the attackers back with heavy loss of life. Finally, on February 18, 1945, a few weeks before I arrived in the region, the 10th Mountain Division, the last American Army division to enter the fighting in Europe, had successfully ascended the sheer cliffs of Riva Ridge in the dark and launched an assault on German positions. Under General George P. Hayes, the men of 10th Mountain caught the entrenched Germans by surprise, dislodged them from the mountain, and then withstood seven ferocious counterattacks by the enemy all in one night. By daybreak, Riva Ridge belonged to the Allies. They then crossed the valley and scaled the heights of Mount Belvedere that had been laced with German landmines and strung with clear tripwires about chest high. Attempting to keep their footing while climbing the mountain in the dark, more than a few soldiers stepped gingerly around a landmine only to bump into a chest-high line that set off the killer blasts. So confident were the Germans that they literally stood in their observation points and watched Hayes' men coming inch by inch, climbing, crawling on their bellies, slipping and sliding, the 10th Mountain Division would not be denied. Through the smoke, dirt, and fog, the Allied troops engaged the Germans, driving them off the mountain, and every piece of ground the 10th took, they kept. The elite 10th Mountain Division, as the Germans came to call them, was composed of an unusual assortment of soldiers, 
made up of European and American ski champions, Olympic swimmers, rock climbers, and Ivy Leaguers from universities such as Harvard, Dartmouth, and Yale. But the Tenth Mountain was anything but a bunch of rich softies trying to ski their way through World War II. Quite the contrary. Its ranks contained some of the toughest, best-trained, highly-conditioned fighting men in the world. Fresh out of Officer's Candidate School at Fort Benning, Georgia, I shipped out in December 1944. I'd enlisted in 1942, was called up in 1943, and by early 1945, I was assigned to a camp of replacement officers outside Rome, Italy. Second lieutenants were a vanishing breed due to the devastating toll the war had taken on our troops' platoon leaders. The 10th Mountain Division was hit particularly, and that's where the Army sent me. I thought it mighty odd that a kid from Kansas who had only seen a mountain up close once in his life would be assigned to lead a platoon of mountain troops. We Kansans didn't ski much, but the Army didn't ask my opinion nor had it bothered to inform me of the severe losses taken by the company to which I had been assigned, the 85th Regiment, 3rd Battalion, I Company. Of its original 200 men, the company had lost 183 during the four months since they had landed in Italy. The company commander, Butch Luther, an all-American football player from Nebraska, and half the lieutenants had been killed in the attack on Mount Belvedere. No wonder the forty or so men of the second platoon didn't go out of their way to get to know me when I arrived. They figured I wouldn't be around long. Chapter 2 I was easy to spot as the new guy. I was the one with a clean uniform. Fresh-faced, wide-eyed, and twenty-one years of age, I wore a tank jacket and tucked my pants neatly into my boots. The guys in the platoon eyed me coolly at first, 